You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Inspired to Act, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine. Here is your host, founding chair, Department of Neurology, Brigham and Women's Hospital, professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Martin A. Samuels. What does treating patients with stigmatized illness teach us about treating all illness? Joining us to discuss lessons learned from treating AIDS at a time when it was severely stigmatized and other topics is author and professor for the theory and practice of medicine at the Stanford University School of Medicine and senior associate chair of the Department of Internal Medicine, Dr. Abraham Verghese. Abraham, welcome and thank you very much for joining us on Inspired to Act. Thank you so much for having me. I was very uh, interested in your training, and before we get on to the main topic, I want to let you know that I also was a Boston City Hospital trainee. I was an old BCH medical resident, and I know that you were there for your infectious disease training. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you ended up training there at the city. Yeah, I came to City Hospital in 83, and believe it or not, the reason I chose infectious disease is that at that point in time, to me, it was the one specialty in medicine that was all about cure. And it was so ironic that arriving at City Hospital in 83, I would see my first and then my second patient with HIV and, and recognize that the whole specialty had been completely changed by this new new illness. So it was a very daunting and uh, interesting time. I was still in Boston when Gallo and Montagne announced that the virus had been discovered that caused it. And I think even then, we didn't have a sense of the full ramifications of this. Uh, my sense was that we would soon find a cure and it would be a thing of the past. So it was a very strange time to be there. You had come to Boston from Tennessee and then you went back there, isn't that right? Indeed, I went back to Tennessee, the place where I had done my residency. And interestingly, all the pundits, all the experts had told me that I could expect to see no HIV or maybe one patient every other year in this town of 50,000. And I think what was most interesting about going back was how in a very short time I began to follow a number of people with HIV and I felt that I had stumbled onto a very interesting paradigm of rural HIV that nobody had ever talked about or anticipated before. Why did it seem so hidden? What were the reasons for that? Well, I think what was happening was we were seeing the tail end of a very complex migration, which begins like this, a young man grows up in a small town and leaves for all the same reasons that you and I leave small towns, jobs, education. But in their case, they were also leaving because they were gay. And so they had left as part of this general exodus. And now, many years after leaving and finding themselves in the big city, tragically, at some point, the virus found them. And they were now coming back to their hometowns, in some cases because they were sick, but in many cases because they hoped that by returning to their simpler routes to the country, they would somehow defer this plague that had taken all their friends. So they were coming back in unanticipated numbers, and there I was at the tail end of this migration, welcoming back hometown boys who in many ways were more alien than I would ever be by virtue of their sexuality in their own towns. This sort of brings up this issue of stigmatization of various illnesses, and this is a a theme that goes throughout history. Epilepsy was once a stigmatized illness. Some people argue that it still is. I wonder what your thoughts are about that. I mean, why are certain illnesses uh, stigmatized and hidden, whereas others, for example, a heart attack is, is really not? You know, I think all illnesses have metaphors, and sometimes the metaphor is a very negative one and becomes 
a stigma. But, you know, I mean, I think you can have positive metaphors in a sense. I've always felt that for many years the, the coronary artery bypass graft was almost a, a mark for business success. You know, every executive proudly displayed their sternal scar. But we've also known that tuberculosis, for some reason, was always seen as a, a condition. The metaphor was one of excess passion. This is the kind of disease that uh, affected John Keats and affected people like that or Chekhov, whereas cancer was seen as a form of weakness. The metaphor of cancer was weakness. Well, the metaphor of HIV, because of the kinds of patients that it initially affected or afflicted, the metaphor was one of shame and of secrecy. And it was, a, you know, it was such a powerful metaphor that it actually began to taint me. I, I actually felt that within that town, I had become tainted by this this metaphor to the degree that people who otherwise might have come to see me decided not to come because they were frightened of what they might contract or come across in my office. So how is it that society or medicine has been successful to in destigmatizing certain illnesses so well? For example, it seems that cancer has come out of the closet pretty successfully, hasn't it? There are cancer centers. People are not much ashamed of going to the cancer center. Is that the secret, to bring it out in the open? Yeah, I think the implication of having HIV in the early years was in many ways more destructive than the virus itself. I had at least one patient who I recall as having been killed by the metaphor. I remember one young man who I had the misfortune to have to tell him that he had HIV, that the test was positive, and you know, I counseled him as best I could that day, and I was very concerned about him and actually brought him back the next day or tried to bring him back the next day to talk some more. But instead, that night, he engineered a shootout in a nightclub where the police were obliged to gun him down. And I, I always thought of that incident as his having attempted to erase the metaphor by going out in this blaze of glory. He was trying to wipe out the potential shame that this carried. When you have the disease start to affect groups outside of the small easily stigmatized communities. And when it begins to affect the likes of, say, Magic Johnson, all of a sudden, you know, the disease takes on a different meaning. But but I would not go so far as to say that the stigma is gone. I, I think in a small town, uh, having HIV is still intensely stigmatizing. And I think just because the media and the press have kind of forgotten about HIV, for the individual, it's still a terrible cross to bear, not just the disease, but what it seems to mean to everybody around them. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Martin Samuels, and joining me to discuss lessons learned from treating stigmatized illness and other topics is author and professor for the theory and practice of medicine at the Stanford University School of Medicine and senior associate chair of the Department of Internal Medicine, Dr. Abraham Verghese. Reading your book and hearing you talk about it, there's an enormous amount of passion in your voice and in your words about uh, taking care of these patients, so much so that one uh, sometimes thinks that you yourself are almost obsessed with curing the disease, taking care of these people. Nowadays, among our medical students, there's a lot of talk about balancing their lives, trying to have what they call a life outside of medicine. And you've really immersed yourself completely in trying to deal with this terrible illness. How do you look upon this issue of how much of oneself one should invest in one's career? You know, it's a very difficult issue, and I'm certainly not the poster child for balance. Uh, you know, I think 
lack of balance cost me my uh, my first marriage, and there were many things that I would probably have done very differently if I had the chance to do it all over again. But I must say that the most powerful lesson I ever learned was from my patients. I, I learned an important distinction between healing and curing. You know, here I was, had, I had gone into ID and infectious disease because it was all about cure, and all of a sudden my practice was people with fatal illness who were about my age. And I began to realize that when I went to visit them in their houses in particular, that my arrival, my presence, was bringing about a kind of healing, if you will. It was helping the patient and the family come to terms with this illness. And it was an aspect of medicine that I had not quite understood before. And it made me realize what it was the horse and buggy doctor of so many years ago was able to offer, even though they didn't have treatment for diphtheria or scarlet fever, all the things that we so easily tackle now. And I'm convinced that for for people who for whom balancing a medical career means basically shortchanging the patient in terms of the time they spend with them, I think that that's a terrible mistake. It doesn't satisfy you as a physician, and you miss out, I think, on the most satisfying aspect of, of being a physician. I, I think that we have gotten so enamored by our technology that we sometimes forget that a critical part of being a physician, I believe, and I I know, Dr. Samuels, from your writing that you believe too, so much of it has to do with your presence at the bedside, with the metaphor of your being there, your concern. Why would anyone want to cheat themselves out of that uh, wonderful privilege? I have to say, as a uh, being a neurologist, I certainly did not go into the field because I thought I was going to cure things. It's a, it's very uh, different that way. It's a paradox in a way because there now there's more treatment in neurology than there was when I went into it. But uh, a lot of helping people, as you say, healing people, really involves the time you spent with them. And I noticed that some of your activities currently at Stanford, in in relation to your interaction with the medical students involves your trying to demonstrate to them the value of the patient-doctor relationship as opposed to replacing it with technology. I wonder if you could expand on that idea a little bit. Yeah, I'm very enamored by the bedside exam ritual, and, and I think there's no higher manifestation of that ritual than, say, the neurological exam. Uh, and I think that what has happened is because we have things like CAT scans and MRIs, Uh, Really, there are very few people, including some neurologists, who are capable of doing a good neurological exam, I'm afraid. They're so reliant on the technology. But my fear is that in abandoning the ritual of the bedside exam and abandoning that moment of putting one's hands on the patient and examining them, one is also missing a great opportunity with the patient. I think that rituals, whether it's a wedding ritual or a baptismal ritual, rituals are about transformation. And can you think of a ritual more steeped in tradition and and more unchanged since antiquity than the ritual of one individual bearing their soul to another and then incredibly bearing their body and allowing you the privilege of examining them. And I think if you shortchange that process or if you do it clumsily or you clearly indicate to the patient that you're not fluent or conversant in how to examine the body, I think you miss a great opportunity to then influence them. And one of the practices that I developed over the years, I had no desire to develop this, but it kind of happened, was people with chronic fatigue. And I always felt that if I was able to influence them and to get them to sort of buy into the recommendations I was making, get them to abandon the quest for the magic doctor, the magic treatment, which was because I had earned the right to tell them these things by virtue 
of having listened to them attentively and examined, examining them very carefully. So I think that technology can't replace that. If we're to buy the trust and bring about the transformation that a ritual brings about, we have to actually perform the ritual. And, and medical students seem to seem to love that. I think they love the old notion of being a, slo- a sleuth at the bedside and you know, doing an exam and saying, oh, this is where the lesion must be because of such and such. Uh, to me, it's the most gratifying part of medicine, and what's more, the patient likes it and needs it to feel taken care of. There's so much more I'd like to talk to you about, uh, Abraham. I want to thank author and professor for the theory and practice of medicine at the Stanford University School of Medicine and senior associate chair of the Department of Internal Medicine, Dr. Abraham Verghese. Abraham, thanks so much for being on Inspired to Act. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine, hosted by Dr. Martin A. Samuels. 